and welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about a new Me Too movement in Iran, as women and men are breaking taboos and talking about sexual abuse and rape on social media, some of them even naming their attackers. My guest today is Susan Tahmasabi, an Iranian-American feminist and women's rights activist and the executive director of FEMENA, an organization that works to promote women's rights in the Middle East and Asia. Between 1999 and 2010, Susan was based in Iran, where she worked to strengthen the role of Iranian civil society. Susan, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you for having me, Negar. Thank you for being with us. Let's talk about the recent wave or basically this Me Too moment that's happening in Iran. What you think made it stand out and be so visible and basically how it started to become so big and so um, meaningful that's now turned into sort of a movement? Well, this um, movement or moment depending on how you see it. Um, I would characterize it similar to other similar movements around the world, that it's just Iranian women expressing their frustration and their anger with um, uh, deep-rooted patriarchy, male privilege, misogyny, that's often intertwined with male power and privilege, um, and results in abuse of women, um, including sexual abuse. So. Um, And I want to say that this is not the first time that women have spoken about sexual violence. I think women have been speaking about sexual violence and especially women's movement activists inside the country have been speaking about sexual violence for decades now. But this particular incident um, started when a um, male um, activist or male um, uh, user of Twitter posted a tweet online saying, talking about how, instructing other men on how they should approach women and basically take advantage of them. And he wrote something to the effect of, you know, if on the first date you should kiss her, and if she objects, then that means that she's not going to have sex with you. And if she doesn't, if she does object, then you can sort of talk about how beautiful she was and that you were just overcome with her beauty and you couldn't help yourself. And that means that you'll be able to get sex from her anyway. And people started objecting to this and talking about how basically, you know, this is talking about forced sexual relations, that it amounts to sex. And then users started coming forward with stories about this particular user and how he had abused them and tried to take advantage of them in the past. And so this was the start. And then other users came forward talking about their own experiences with um, sexual violence, sexual assault, sexual and rape. Um, Many of those users were unknown and um, their perpetrators were also unknown at the beginning. Um, A few days later, and I think by coincidence, there was a um, a video released that interviewed a number of female journalists who talked about the harassment, the sexual harassment and, you know, coercion they felt in their workspace, whether it was by um, their uh, supervisors, fellow journalists, or by people that they went out to interview. And I think a lot of the accounts were really more about the people that they went out to interview. Many of them were um, powerful men. 
and um, that really treated them as sex objects and put them in very uncomfortable positions and tried to have their way with them. And so it was a very telling and uh, really stark video about the realities of female journalists and their lives and their work um, that I think um, was ended up being sort of another um, uh, uh, sort of wave um, that emerged out of this Me Too movement, or actually it galvanized those people who were already talking about sexual violence and rape. This this took it to another level. I want to also add that these are female journalists in Iran. So they're taking basically this step to, and as you were saying on video, as I saw some of them, to come out and talk about these abuses. And this movement has been unfolding on Twitter, sort of a newfound social media outlet for Iranians. There's a large wave of new users on Twitter that um, is special because it provides a form of anonymity to certain users, but also there's a lot of presence by journalists and uh, political activists and politicians on the platform, although it's banned by the Iranian government or filtered in Iran. Um, So these are all uh, new platforms that are offering basically this um, an avenue for this movement. But let's also talk about past precedents because I know you've been working in this space, you've been part of this movement uh, for years. And this moment, as, as, as I see it, it's a big moment, but it's not the first moment. There have been previous steps basically taken by women or the women's movement that um, has led to this large wave that we're witnessing today. Tell us some highlights of of precedence of of this form of uh, basically breaking taboos and and coming out by women in the past. Well, sure. I mean, I should add to this discussion that, you know, several weeks after this started, one uh, journalist who's based outside of Iran um, a female journalist who's out, based outside of Iran actually came forward and talked about sexual um, violence that she'd experienced, groping or form of sexual assault by a um, well, very well-known um, uh, artist that everybody knows, and um, and this also created a lot of uproar among the you know the the, the users on social media about the issue of um, sexual violence and sexual violence that women are facing, and it actually put a name. Um, uh, to this movement in a sense, and somebody with legitimacy who was willing to speak about this issue and especially speak about a man that was well known in public and um, talked to, you know, uh, foreign based media outlets. So I I, want to mention that. And I think that that was also an important development in this movement. But in terms of past precedents, sure, women have talked about violence and Um, They've talked about sexual violence, and I think some of the recent cases that actually come to mind that I think are significant to talk about is two years ago, um, there was news that broke out, and um, surprisingly, the the news that broke out was actually announced by the Friday prayer leader of this small village um, in Sistan Baluchistan province, and he announced that 41 women had been raped, um, forcibly raped, abducted and raped in Sistan Baluchistan, and... um, this, you know, this, uh, of course, then it came forward, then it came out that these, that the men had actually been involved in this abduction and rape were powerful, they had money, and they were tied to power. Um, and uh, the judiciary also came forward and said that, you know, the, the denied some of it and said some of it's actually true, that only four women who were willing to act to um, 
charged, come forth with, you know, with complaints and officially uh, place uh, complaints against the perpetrators. Some of them had been arrested and there was a, there was a huge outpouring of um, uh, support for these women um, initially on social media, but it didn't turn into this Me Too movement. And um, for me, it was interesting to see that people actually organized outside the governor's office in, um, you know, in that city. And some women activists um, held a sit-in within the governor's office demanding that, you know, officials actually follow up these charges and these support these women. And basically, it eventually died down. And I think probably because um, there wasn't um, a lot of follow-up for a consistent amount of time by observers, by social media users, and also the sensitive nature of the complaint, but also the cultural sensitivities that maybe exists in that region as well. But this, this, was, this was significant, and especially significant because this is an area where there, where there is a lot of cultural conservatism that exists. So it's not just um, a, a matter of the state not responding um, but there's, you know, these women were coming forward in an environment where it was extremely difficult because socially it was, you know, uh, women were normally to be blamed. Um, some time ago, a young, I guess, uh, a young woman came forward and talked about, her name was Zahra Navipur. She talked about how she had been raped by a, um, uh, an MP um, four years ago. And, um, you know, this made... Uh, headlines and people followed it up and she actually went forth and um, co- placed a, a police complaint and complained about this MP but it was eventually reported that she committed suicide and there's some concern and some skepticism with respect to her um, committing suicide. So this is not um, the first time that people have come forward and actually these people have come forward with their own name, at least in their own communities they're known. So they've taken huge risks to come forward. Um, It's a little bit different than what's happening on social media because of many of the people talking about this issue um, uh, are talking about it anonymously. So those people were I think, um, taking great risks to come forward with their own names. So this recent wave, the most recent wave, has led to at least one arrest of a former art graduate who um, a number of women have posted, some of them anonymous stories of basically how he drugged them and um, took advantage of them or or even raped them. And... um, it seems like there is some legal movement. There's also a very um, beautiful solidarity or sisterhood that I've seen. Some female attorneys have come forward uh, volunteering to take these cases to bring charges against the uh, attackers pro bono and asking women to come forward and um, basically claiming that they would support them and stand by them the entire process. Where do you see this moment going and do you think is it going to have um, a long-term impact, be it legal, cultural, um, on the society, how women see the issue of consent, how men understand harassment or assault? How do you see this um, movement moving basically the Iranian society? Well, I think this movement has already had great impact. If nothing else, for over a month now, everybody has been talking about sexual violence, issues of consent. And I should mention that, you know, the stories that have come forward, 
Um, they've been both about harassment, um, uh, sexual coercion. Um, they take into account power relations with that sexual co coercion and harassment. So in places of work or people who are more powerful and they talk about those issues and talk about sexual assault and rape and um, including um, uh, you know, um, uh, rape by people who they, people they, they know, right? So it's not necessarily um, anonymous perpetrator that's raping the women, but they're talking about um, uh, being raped by people that they know, people who are close to them or that they've met. So I, I think it's important to talk to, to look at it in that in that respect. And this has offered an incredible oppor learning opportunity for Iranians who are following this, people on social media, to understand the difference between sexual harassment and you know, sexual assault and rape and that, that kind of a thing, but to also talk about how none of it is actually appropriate and how women don't, you know, they don't accept any of it and none of it is necessarily um, uh, something that women um, uh, find um, pleasing or appropriate. And I think that in that sense, it's done a great job um, of educating both men and women. Um, but I think the other really interesting thing about this um, Me Too movement is that predominantly, for the most part, um, and certainly at the beginning, before really powerful, well-known men were named, the environment, um, there seemed to be a receptivity to these stories and to women, and um, uh, not so much victim-blaming and victim-shaming. And whenever there were instances where there was victim-blaming, victim-shaming, other people would step up and say, this is not appropriate, that just you know, just because somebody went to someone's house doesn't mean that they're asking for sex or that it doesn't mean they're asking for violent sex or, you know, just because they, you know, they even if they drank, drank alcohol, it doesn't mean that they want to engage in sexual relations. So I think that in that sense, it's been good. There's been somewhat of a backlash as more powerful men have been named and some blaming of women and some, you know, reluctance to believe stories, etc. So I think in terms of cultural education, it's already done a great job and I don't really see this going away. I think that this discussion will continue and I see women's movement activists moving in to guide the discussion and, um, you know, make sure that it doesn't turn into its own antithesis, right? That it doesn't turn into something that's not feminist, that's against women, that, you know, create, does, that um, denies women space to talk. So providing women that space to talk has been incredible. In terms of um, legal measures, yes, well, Iran has, you know, a complicated legal system. Um, uh, it's not uh, friendly to women, uh, and it's, it's difficult to prove rape. In this particular case that you mentioned, um, uh, the police came forward and actually, you know, because the stories were so similar and there's so many stories, even though the majority of them were told by people who were anonymous, the police came forward and said, we're going to take um, complaints. People should come forward. They shouldn't be afraid of coming forward. And then in this in itself is, is very significant. There are problems with the with um, Iranian law, because if you can't prove rape and because rape is only identified as violent rape, Right. And you have to be able to prove violent rape either by, you know, you're physically bruised or, you know, you have uh, people who've seen you yell and scream, etc. And much of these instances of our rape are not necessarily violent in that sense. They can't they can't necessarily be proved or people don't go. They don't go report it. They don't go to the police. They don't go, you know, to the coroner's office to report it and document it. So it becomes very difficult to prove it. And I think people are afraid that if they do co go forward with the accusation of rape and that they can't 
be proven. If they're not able to prove the, their accusation, then they may be seen um, as complicit in illicit sexual relations, which would mean that the woman would also face some sort of punishment, which would be flogging, which, which can be buy, bought with, with a fine. So, And then you also have you know, judicial systems and police systems that are not well trained to deal with these kinds of complaints. So you might have a backlash against women. Again, you have victim blaming, victim shaming, those same kinds of questions that I think around the world women are asked whenever they're raped. Why were you there? What were you doing? What was your purpose? So that that kind of thing. And then you also have the cultural impact that it's very difficult for these women to come forward. It's been easier for them to come forward even publicly and with their own name on social media than it has been for them to come out to their own families with this. So mm -hmm. I think this discussion will help move all of these barriers forward to some degree, um, even if we can't, you know, and I, and I think the interesting thing with the, um, the uh, complaint that was filed against that art student graduate that had, you know, had drugged women and raped them, you know, with a um, date raped them, basically, um, uh, was, uh, you know, that was um, interesting in the sense that you had then lawyers stepping forward and guiding people on what the process of the law was. And one woman actually lodged a complaint. And then she came back and told people, I went and I, you know, I put put forth my complaint, the police treated me very well. And she recounted her whole experience with with the police. And I think that that was an encouraging moment that it might encourage other people to go forward. But other cases are not as clear cut. You don't have as many accounts that are similar and as many accounts that are similar by women who are not related or who don't know each other. So it becomes a little bit more difficult to prove, especially when years have passed. And I should say that there's no um, limit on the years that have passed. You know, if somebody has committed rape, um, you can continue to report it forever, right? So you don't have a statute of limitations and that's, that's positive. But then when many years pass, it, be, it becomes very difficult to actually prove that rape. But I think that people will start looking at it differently. And certainly if the judicial system and the police system have to deal with these accounts, perhaps they'll start adopting measures that address um, uh, the needs of women a little bit better. And hopefully one of, at least this one case will prove, prove in that sense. And perhaps women can start working towards reforming laws that takes into account other forms of rape that's not necessarily through um, very provable violence. Right, like you were saying, it's my observation that it's been, basically it's turned into a national debate and also a conversation that's been very educational on issues of consent, what's considered consent, what's considered a harassment, and also on legal processes, like you're saying, women also actually learning from each other, how do you go and report rape? It's not something that's um, very easy or comfortable, even in a society like the U.S., where the laws are so much more equal and uh, the situation has been made so much more comfortable for women but then put it in the context of Iranian law and Iranian society more traditional more strict towards women let's also talk about the punishment of rape in the case that it is um, the accusation does turn into an actual um, court ruling the punishment for rape can be death in Iran and that I understand is also a concern part of this conversation um, for women who are coming forward, how has that shaped or impacted this moment? Yeah, I think that there are people who are afraid of, 
of, you know, that they don't believe in executions. And so they are nervous about um, coming forward and, you know, uh, and, and placing forward their complaints, and especially with this particular, the one um, uh, perpetrator that has, you know, has been accused of multiple crimes, but, you know, by multiple women, um, his case would probably be complicated in that sense that if it was proved and um, uh, it would be proved by the uh, knowledge of or the discretion of the judge, right? So the judge can take into account all this knowledge from different, uh, all the cases from different women and rule that, yes, it seems that he was, you know, he was guilty and that could potentially hold a um, a sentence of execution. So people, perhaps a lot of women are reluctant to come forward because they don't believe in execution. And um, yes, it it has a deterring, there is a deterring factor there. So it's problematic. Right. Let's also talk about if you can make some comparisons to the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement started in the United States, mainly in Hollywood, and then it went beyond U.S. borders and it was witnessed and observed by women across the world. I've even heard from some women in the Iranian context who um, were encouraged after the Me Too movement started to come forward and tell their own stories. How is this moment, the Iranian Me Too movement, similar to that global or the American Me Too movement? And what are some of the differences that you think are important to know? Well, I think it's similar, as I said at the beginning, is that, you know, it's an expression of anger against, you know, male privilege and deep-rooted patriarchy um, that, you know, that's misogynistic and, you know, it's abusive of women. And um, so... I think that you know they have many many similar characteristics in that sense, but I, the difference with the Me Too movement in the U.S. was that, you know, it was well known. I mean, of course, it it started ten years before, right? So um, that maybe in that sense, it's similar. Is that you know this is not the first time that Iranian women have talked about it, just like it wasn't the first time that American women had talked about sexual violence in this way. But when it turned into this, you know, this um, into a movement in that sense, it was well-known women coming forward, um, well-known and uh, pop, women who were popular in the media as well, right, who came forward and put accusations up against, you know, uh, expressed accusations against very well-known men. Um, and, you know, this was picked up by the media and Within like a year or two years, then there was, you know, um, uh, um, either legal action, but almost immediately these men were um, dismissed from their places of employment. They were uh, either asked to resign, they resigned themselves. And I think that's something that's that's, um, significant and and very different than what's happening in Iran. Um, The women who are coming forward are not well-known women, and the initial accusations were not against well-known men. Those accusations that are against, that have been against well-known men, have not been so um, effective in um, enforcing those men out of their positions of power. And this has been a little bit disheartening for us as as activists to see is that you know with the um, with the story that Sara Omatali came forward with against the um, uh, against the well-known artists, people said, "Oh, we've known this forever. We've known it forever." 
well, this is, you know, a lot of people didn't, a lot of people who were in the inner circle, circles didn't doubt it. But um, the general public looking at this had, a, had, a, had took issue with, you know, accusations about, you know, such a well-known artist. And um, uh, he came forward and gave, you know, his own account and many people believed him. There are a couple of other instances that are pretty well known and, um, you know, and I think there, there are two instances in, in particular that have been taken up, I would say, by the women's movement. The women's movement is particularly concerned and worried about them. One is about a, um, a, um, a, a researcher who did a lot of field research inside of Iran and did research on issues that have to do with women and especially with marginalized community. He's very well known. He's well known in international circles. He's received awards, etc. But it came forward and the, there was multiple accounts, multiple similar accounts from people who are not necessarily coordinating that came forward. The first one that came forward, the others then, then, then came forward with their own stories about how he abused his position of power, how he basically groomed these young women who were from more traditional families, used the, this, this sort of um, this line on them, or really this 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 um, element of pressure on them to say that you know you shouldn't be um, so conservative, you should be a modern woman, and you know to get them in positions and in places where he could take advantage of them and rape them. Basically, the stories are not stories of consensual rape. I mean, consensual relations. They're stories of consensual rape, and it's really angered. Um, the Iranian women's movement because they have taken this as an assault on, on the movement itself. Somebody who has found, its, found his way into the movement, working to support women's rights, is now has used that position um, to his advantage, to take advantage of women in this way. And um, initially he didn't um, give a response, but just yesterday he gave a response that was even more angering than, than if he hadn't responded. And, um, you know, so I think that in that sense is that, and he basically, he said, you know, I'm sorry if you judge me because of my different lifestyle. And, you know, he made a couple of statements that were extremely problematic in that statement and ultimately said that I too am a victim of patriarchy, which is, um, which has angered people even more. And, and I think the issue is that because these women come from very conservative, um, uh, sectors of Iranian society, they come from small cities, they come from conservative families. Um, and um, because also after they came forward, there was this whole campaign by the perpetrator to silence them, um, that, you know, maybe they might not come forward with an official complaint against him. And so if they don't, then there is um, very little that we can do. And um, it becomes a he said, she said kind of a thing. And, and I think one way that they've tried, to, that this particular person has tried to um, dismiss these charges is to sort of say, initially at least he said, oh, this is a, this is a security, you know, the security sector is charging me and this is, this is a, a, a fake case. But then he came forward and actually admitted that maybe he did something's wrong. But it hasn't been an, an immediate dismissal from a position of power. Mm -hmm. There are also another, um, uh, two people who were in a position to work with or provide, I mean, they worked at a university in the U.S. I'm not going to name them, but um, uh, for your purposes and for, for mine, I'm not going to name them. But I think that they are, you know, that people can look and see who they are, but they were in a position of power based in the U.S. And they worked with a lot of 
um, uh, young activists um, who had come to this particular university to study. And stories about this, these two have been emerging for, for quite some time. There were letters that were written a couple years ago. There were individual stories. And the issue is now this, is that, okay, so maybe we can't do anything because some of your victims are in Iran or some of the survivors are now in Iran, they can't do anything or you, know, or you came to some sort of agreement with the university, et cetera. But at the minimum that we can have is that we can stop seeing your faces in um, Iranian media. The Iranian media needs to be responsive to women and stop inviting them as experts. And we've had issues with that. I mean, these women are, are very angry and this is what they're demanding. And um, uh, the foreign language media, the Persian language media is not responding in kind. So I think that those are the differences that when it actually comes to it, it's become very difficult to break that male privilege. And that male privilege within the Iranian society, it's not just enforced by the state, it's, as you can see, it's enforced by other men, by other men in positions of power, by the media who are not willing to take decisive action to say, yes, um, we recognize that you know, these men have used their power against women, they've abused their power, and um, they've committed sexual assault or rape, and we're gonna stop engaging with them. So mm -hmm. I think those are huge differences in that sense. Now let's take a step back um, and take a look at Iran's women's movement. If you can tell us very briefly, a brief history of Iran's. Some people that I talk to are surprised that there is even a women's rights movement in Iran. It's, very, it's been vibrant over the years. It's, it's had important successes, but it's also had a lot of challenges. Tell us a little brief history of Iran's women's movement until this moment? Well, we've had an Iranian women's movement for over 100 years. And like the rest of the movements in the region, initially that movement was started, you know, to ensure that, you know, uh, women have, ac have had access to education. And, um, you know, it was uh, around the time of the constitutional revolution. Women are also involved in the constitutional revolution. They were advocating for their own organizations. They had set up their own organizations, had publications, etc. So this is over 100 years ago. But let me talk a little bit about the more modern history of the women's movement, especially after the Iranian revolution of 1979. For the first 10 years or the first couple years after the revolution, I think, and especially after Iran went to war with Iraq, there was this period of intense repression where people couldn't talk, talk not just women, everybody. And um, you know, during that, and I'm talking about the women's movement inside the country, and certainly during that period, there were women who spoke outside the country and objected to the adoption of, you know, a very conservative uh, interpretation of Sharia law that followed the revolution and um, um, the, you know, overturning of hard-won legal gains um, of women at that time. So there are women who were objecting to it. But after the eight-year war, where space opened up just a little bit, women started um, speaking up writing, speaking up about um, the discrimination and the violence that was, um, you know, that resulted especially from the law and the legal system. And they did this through, um, mostly through progressive religious interpretation. And one example of that is Zanon Monthly, which is uh, Women Monthly, which is the first feminist publication that was set up after the Iranian Revolution by Shahla Sherkat. And she did this along with Mehrangi Zakar and a religious scholar. They worked together to 
provide alternative interpretations of Sharia law and really broke the silence inside of Iran about the these laws that were repressive and that um, you know that they, they pushed women back their their social gains and their legal status back um, uh, perhaps centuries right so in the next decade of the after the revolution we see the emergence of um, uh, women's groups. For initially, we see the emergence of other types of groups, you know, like uh, ch child rights groups, and women are active in those and bringing their own gender perspective. But towards the end of that decade, we see the emergence of small women's groups. And certainly with the reform period, we see an opening up of space because Khatami was elected on a, on a um, platform of civil society and political reform. And a lot of women's groups organized and were established during that period. And initially they started really educating themselves, learning, you know, coming together, figuring out about what they wanted to work out, work on and how, how they wanted to do it, educating themselves, educating others in their small groups, in their NGOs. So whether they're youth NGOs or women's NGOs or even women's environmental NGOs, etc. Um, violence against women has been a mainstay really from the second um, decade of the Iranian revolution up until now. It's been a mainstay of the agenda of the women's movement. The decade after that, which is Ahmadinejad's period, when civil society and a lot of the NGOs were shut down, women organized in campaigns. They took their message to the gra grassroots. They talked to regular Iranians about the need to change laws, about uh, violence against women, how the laws promoted violence against women. They held workshops in different cities. So, you know, this has been a huge component of what the Iranian women's movement has been dealing with. And they've done so in a very strategic manner. Um, they've responded to the um, political opportunities that they've had to push forth an agenda of equality to push forth for the elimination of violence against women. And they've used multiple tools and a multi-layered approach to doing so, whether it was reaching out, working with the public, or doing you know, advocacy, doing legal education, legal advocacy, or you know, if it meant if they couldn't work with the national government, then they worked with local government to push forth their agenda. And they're still continuing to do it. It's currently we have a rather repressive environment and unfortunately the Iranian women's movement is very isolated both because of the repression that they're experiencing at home but also because of sanctions. They're more isolated than they have ever been before but nevertheless they're still active and um, to me it was astounding how the Iranian women's movement and women's rights activists inside of Iran rose to this occasion to respond to both information gaps um, provide information to the public as they're talking about sexual violence and, you know, and, and to sort of teach them what they should know. And then also provides, you know, very strategically provides solutions to some of the problems that people are dealing with from, you know, how do you punish perpetrators to, you know, how do you train workplaces to prevent sexual harassment? This is the kind of work that they're doing now. You mentioned sanctions. I want to talk about a little bit of this external force and the impact you mentioned the iran iraq war and how that helped create a very oppressive environment in the country for all of civil society and now we are in an era of maximum pressure policy by the u.s government towards iran economic sanctions crippling as they're called and then at the same time you also see um 
government officials, someone like Mike Pompeo trying to pose as a champion of Iranian women or the U.S. government or Trump administration basically um, pretending or claiming that they are supportive of, of Iranian movements and the Iranian people. What are the negative impacts of of all of these policies on on the women's movement in Iran and basically um, the how, how do you see the misappropriation or the co-opting of an organic and, and the strong movement in the country by um, by these forces outside well um, I should say that you know these years have been really tense tense years on multiple fronts but for Iranians um, but also especially for the Iranian women's movement and Iranian women um, I think that you know Iranians have had to fight um, and struggle on multiple fronts one of them has been you know the worsening human rights situation within the country the worsening economic situation within the country that impacts all Iranians, but especially impacts also people working in civil society because the civil society is largely a volunteer civil society. So when you don't, when you, when you, when you have to work three jobs, for example, um, to make ends meet, then you don't have much time to do volunteer work. Um, and then also, you know, this constant threat of war and then, you know, the sort of the securitization of Iranian society in general because, well, because there's this government has chosen to have very repressive policies, especially and, and, and um, uh, sort of um, be suspicious of civil society and civic engagement. Um, but it's more likely to be suspicious and to be repressive if it feels a constant threat, and it feels a constant threat. So um, we've had increased repression, but also um, uh, this threat of war and fear of war, which combined together makes it extremely difficult for any of the social movements to plan long term to create positive change. Um, and you know, I was uh, somewhere somebody was talking about how, you know, Iranian people are protesting. So this is a sign of a vibrant social movement. Actually, it's not because they take their lives into their own hands when they go and protest and they're protesting because they're hungry. So <laughs> and they're hungry because of state corruption and sanctions. So this is I don't really see this as a positive um, uh, sort of um uh, example of civil society's presence. I mean, I think civil protests can and should only be one of the tools that people use. Um, so I think that the this maximum pressure campaign is putting a lot of pressure on Iranian society and the Iranian women's movement is part of that society and they're feeling this pressure. It's impacting them in their personal lives, but it's also impacting them greatly in their ability to carry out work. And um, so I think when U.S. government officials talk about how they care about Iranian people and um, Iranian women, they need to really consider how their policies are negatively impacting this population, and they really are. And it's very, and it's really, it's very difficult to talk about human rights and women's rights in a country when relations are so incredibly tense. And really, for the last couple of years, we've all been you know, waiting and fearing that any minute war could erupt, right? It becomes very difficult to talk about that and not have a negative impact um, on that movement. But 
it's also very difficult to talk about that, um, the, you know, caring about human rights and women's rights in Iran when you don't have the same policy, for example, with Saudi Arabia or with Bahrain or with other countries in the region. So it, it's politicizing um, human rights issues and they, human rights issues should not be politicized in this way. And finally, let's end on a more helpful note. I hear from a lot of people who ask me, how can we support the Iranian people? How can we support Iranian women? Tell us what you think are positive forms of solidarity or sisterhood that the international community can and should be encouraged to do to support or to help or amplify the voices of Iranian women. Well, I mean, I think, first of all, we need to recognize that this is a movement similar to its sister movements around the world. It's not an East-West thing. It's not a Muslim-Christian thing. It's not an Iran-U.S. you know, versus U.S. thing. And solidarity is um, goes both ways. Support and learning goes both ways. So if Iranian women have, you know, are learning from the Me Too movement, I think many Westerners can also learn from the experience of Iranian women. So that, you know, I think that it's it's really important to look at that. Um, I, I would recommend, I really recommend centering the experiences and the voices of the Iranian women's movement, those who are inside the country, who see the complexities, who have to deal with the complexities uh, um, in, in our um, engagement with Iran and on Iranian women's issues that, but unfortunately, because of the issues that I talked about, the repression, the sanctions, the economic hardships, you know, it has become increasingly difficult to hear those voices um, and that in the West. And, um, and as I said, the Iranian women's movement is more isolated than it's ever been before. And I think, you know, uh, solidarity would be, would be and I'm, when I talk about solidarity, I'm not just talking about women. I'm I'm particularly talking about the international women's movement. Um, really needs to figure out a way to center the voices of those activists inside the country when we talk about women in Iran and the women's movement and the demands that we you know um, uh, we need to be able to hear about them and we can't hear about them unless they're either present in our midst or somehow we're listening to them through, you know, through their social media platforms, etc. And I think that that's the most important thing that we can do. We can try to break the isolation. It's been really interesting for me how Iranian women have stepped up and, you know, they've they've, you know, provided they've offered to provide training, you know, to workplaces on sexual harassment. They've offered uh, analysis to Iranians about how they should view this movement and they've theorized about what's going on and they provide critical information to inform people and in so doing they've learned from the experiences of their sisters in the West but also their sisters in the region I think many of them look at Egypt for example they've looked at India etc and they've looked at those groups more and more but they're not connected to any of those groups and their voices aren't heard and they're extremely isolated and I think you know solidarity would be to try to break that isolation in some way and to tell them look you're not alone and we value your experiences and you need to let us know how we can help and we're also here to learn from you I think that those are the important thing the important messages that we need to put out there in terms of solidarity 
hopefully we'll see more of that solidarity and international sisterhood. Well, on that note, Susan, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you for having me and thanks for focusing on the situation of Iranian women. That was Susan Tahmasbi, an Iranian-American feminist and women's rights activist and the executive director of FEMENA, an organization that works to promote women's rights in the Middle East and Asia. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. You can subscribe to us on your podcast apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.